those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, it's Mexi. Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. Today we have a very important and very timely episode about the criminalization of indigenous resistance to dispossession, to major resource extraction and development projects on their traditional territories without their consent. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Warren Bernauer to the show, uh, who I will introduce shortly. But this is a very timely episode because of what is going on currently in Canada at the Unisotan camp. It's been making international headlines, but for people who are outside of Canada, I know that the majority of our listeners are uh, American or, you know, from everywhere around the world. So not everyone that is listening is from Canada. If you don't know about what's happening, the Wet'suwet'en Nation in BC has set up a camp at Unistoten to protest the Trans-Canada coastal gas link pipeline going through their traditional territory without the consent of hereditary chiefs. We will be diving into this later, but I just wanted to note that although a lot of what we'll be talking about today is Canada-focused, this really applies to all settler colonial states. This applies to America as well. I mean, we saw Standing Rock, etc. And we'll be talking about what's been going on in Chile as well. So this is really a global phenomenon in, you know, late stage capitalism in, in all stages of capitalism. This has been very prevalent and just standard practice, really, to secure the interests of capital at the expense of marginalized people and the environment. So before we get into this episode, I wanted to read out, as I said I would, I promised I would, some inspiring headlines for the future that have been sent in by the listeners. So in our New Year special podcast put out two weeks ago at the start of January, Maureen and I did uh, a challenging exercise where we dreamt up headlines for the future, assuming that the change that we want to see in the world has come about. So what are some of the headlines we would expect to see if we won, <laughs> if what we wanted to see happen in the world came about. And we encouraged listeners to send in their headlines to us uh, via Twitter, via Facebook, via email at veganvanguardpodcast at gmail.com. And we've gotten so many amazing responses. There are so many here. So I'm only going to read uh, headlines from three people today, but never fear if you have submitted headlines, I have received them. I have loved them all and I will be reading them out uh, at some point. I'm going to read different headlines out at the start of every episode in this upcoming year. Um, in order to remind ourselves that, yeah, we're trying to orient our energies towards building and dreaming the future and and tearing down we're tearing down what we don't want but we're also orienting our energy to what we do want and we're focusing on that so that we can uh, have something to walk towards that we know that we're all walking towards together so these headlines are amazing so 
uh, at Shaderboy on Twitter, aka Trans Jesus, has some amazing headlines for us. Number one, all turkeys pardoned for the first time this Indigenous Peoples Day. Bravo. I love that one. <laughs> Absolutely love that one. Perfect. I know I always share the memes of, you know, what's the difference between the Yulin Dog Festival and Thanksgiving propaganda. Uh, number two, Trump sacrificed in deal with aliens for fully automated gay luxury space communism. Yes. <laughs> yes. So good. Um, number three, last Anthropocene survivor dies at 105. It's an interesting one. And lastly, 10 grossest animal parts carnist used to eat. You won't believe number six. I love it. So uh, at British Manzaf on Twitter also says, the last state on earth nears the completion of withering away, bringing humanity ever closer to purging social antagonisms and one step closer to a Star Trek-like civilization. Bravo. <laughs> I like it. Um, David Hotchkiss on Facebook says, 2025 worldwide ban on monoculture cropping leads to increased biodiversity, food security, and reduced pesticide use. Wonderful. And Max Person says, U.S. government overthrown by leftists. New government redistributes what it got by imperialism to their rightful owners. So thank you to everyone who I read out today and uh, as well to everyone who contributed headlines that I have not yet read but will read in the future. And if you'd like to participate, please send in your headlines. I really, really love this idea and this project that we're doing. And lastly, before we start, I'm going to shout out the new patrons for this week. So thank you so much to Harrison Smith, Ted Satterfield, and Henry Knees. So if you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron donor at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard, or you can toss us a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com. You can also support us monthly via PayPal, which Henry Knees has done. So thank you very much for that. You can also support the show by sharing our episodes with friends and family and by leaving us a review and rating on iTunes, which also helps us to increase our reach. So getting into our episode today, I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Warren Bernauer to the show. Warren recently finished his PhD at York University in the Geography Department, and his research deals with Indigenous resistance to resource extraction in the Arctic. Warren works closely with Inuit groups in Nunavut that were opposing oil, gas, and uranium extraction. And since 2015, he has been teaching courses at the University of Manitoba and the University of Winnipeg on various topics, including Indigenous studies and the geography of natural resources. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. So Warren... Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes. Full disclosure, Warren and I know each other because we were colleagues and uh, yeah, <laughs> we work on similar issues. So uh, Warren, yes, I wanted to have you on the show to talk about 
the criminalization of Indigenous resistance. I know you've done a lot of work with Indigenous communities in Canada and just have a lot of great knowledge about what's been going on. Um, this is also a pretty pivotal time for Indigenous resistance in Canada and North America more broadly. I mean, we had the Dakota Access Pipeline, very high profile struggle and, you know, militarized response to that resistance movement. And in Canada, I know that the Unistoten camp is getting global coverage right now, I think. I mean, I saw it written about in The Guardian. You know, you had Susan Sarandon and Ellen Page coming out in support of Unistoten camp. So I thought it would be, you know, a timely podcast to put out. So before we get started, I guess, could you tell us about your work with Indigenous communities? Just let the readers know, you know, what's your background? What's your um, experience with this? Yeah, for sure. So um, most of my work is with Inuit communities in Nunavut uh, in Arctic Canada. Um, so I started going up to Nunavut as a graduate student, uh, you know, doing my graduate school research in 2010. And as a part of that, I uh, did pretty extensive volunteer work with uh, some community groups that were opposed to huge major extractive projects. So I worked really closely with the Baker Lake Hunters and Trappers organizations in a campaign to stop a proposed uranium mine near their communities. Mm. So I had the really wonderful opportunity to work with uh, an Inuit elder named Joan Scotty, mm -hmm. who's been uh, the spokesperson for local opposition to uranium mining in her community since the 1980s and has been really central to all these struggles since the early 1970s, actually. And so there, I mostly helped with submissions for an environmental assessment of the project, mm -hmm. you know, helping uh, the organization draft their submissions, present at final hearings and whatnot. And it ended up going in our favor. So the review board recommended the project not be approved in 2015. Mm. And the federal government followed suit the next year. That's and amazing. Yeah, it was it was really great. And at the moment, I'm really lucky because uh, I'm working with Joan on a co-authored book. That's kind of her life story and uh, her people's history and really focuses on the, her sort of decades of resistance to uranium mining. Mm. And then I also worked with the community of Clyde River on a campaign opposing seismic surveys, which are a method ex of exploring for offshore oil and gas deposits. And so in that mm -hmm. case, I was really fortunate to work with Jerry Natanine, uh, who was the mayor of Clyde River at the time. Um, mm. And so I helped him again draft submissions to regulators. In that case, the project was approved, but uh, Jerry, uh, with volunteers like myself, uh, organized a legal challenge at the surveys, and eventually the case made its way to the Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of Clyde and quashed the permit. So I guess mm, those are the amazing. Yeah, so those are the projects I've had a large role in. You know, I've mm -hmm. also tried to support other indigenous campaigns and movements like I Don't Know More, Justice for Franceska, and the Labrador Land Protectors by you know doing things like writing about their struggles, fundraising participating in actions and circulating petitions and the like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember um, the Clyde River case. That was really big in the media as well. There was that whole, I can't remember, the hashtag movement. But the, yeah, that's wonderful that you had so much success with that. Yeah, it was, it was really, um, really wonderful. Uh, and I'm really lucky to have been involved in campaigns that had major victories. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So around a year ago, you wrote an article for Monthly Review about the criminalization of Indigenous resistance. So could you tell us a bit more about that article and why you wrote it? Yeah, for sure. So um, 
That article grew out of that Freedom for Francesca campaign that I mentioned earlier. So at the time, I was working with a group of community organizers and academics in Winnipeg who were supporting Francesca Linkanao, who is a mm-hmm. Mapuche elder, and Machi, uh, a spiritual leader uh, from Chile who was imprisoned on fabricated charges of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happened was in 2009, Linkanao uh, became kind of notorious in Chile uh, by winning a major victory in the Chilean courts against this forestry company. Uh, it was a huge landmark precedent-setting case for Indigenous rights in Chile, uh, stopped a logging firm from clear-cutting places that were sacred for the Mapuche, and uh, made her quite famous, but as a result also made her a target of the state and uh, of this multinational extractive capital. Mm-hmm. So just a few years later in 2016, she was arrested for allegedly masterminding an attack against a rich landowner. Um, there was really scant evidence connecting t- to her to the violence that took place. Um, mm-hmm. And she was charged under Chile's anti-terrorism laws for her alleged role in this. Um, and these laws were a holdover from the Pinochet era. So like these are the same laws that Pinochet really infamously used to jail or disappear socialists and other opponents, many of whom were Mapuche. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I think something that's not really well known in international circles is that Allende, that leftist unity campaign that Pinochet uh, di- um, overthrew with his coup, was based on a really interesting alliance between Mapuche and uh, workers in Chile. So it's mm. actually um, kind of an interesting early experiment in you know the socialist strategy that uh, I think a lot of us advocate for today, which is the need to have this sort of... Uh, like unified front between sort of indigenous movements, the workers movements and the environmental movement. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a really fascinating, um, yeah, experiment in uh, leftist strategy, uh, mm-hmm. which Pinochet, as we all know now, uh, overthrew with the backing of the CIA and the American government um, mm-hmm. and uh, used unmanageable levels of terror to uh, mm-hmm. consolidate his rule. He, threw a lot of socialists in jail. Thousands of people just disappeared at night and were murdered in what was essentially a genocide of the left. Um, mm-hmm. And Mapuche uh, as well. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, so Lincoln L was charged under these exact same laws. Um, as a result, she was being held in indefinite pretrial detention. They were just not setting a trial date. They were basically just, as far as we could tell, just using all of this is an excuse to get a useful organizer off the streets and move her into jail. Um, mm-hmm. There was a huge sort of public outcry amongst Mapuche in Chile as a result, these big mass mobilizations. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of when we learned about this was through the news. And it looked to us like she was unlikely to get a fair trial. Mm-hmm. As you know, these anti-terrorism laws are used to circumvent other procedural rights of accused people in Chile. Uh, like the, they allow the use of anonymous witnesses by the state and secret evidence that uh, the accused's legal counsel can't examine, like just really mm-hmm. draconian stuff that would not stand up in any sort of court. Mm-hmm. And in the last 20 years, Chile's been using these laws really frequently to harass Mapuche leaders, to detain them, to have them convicted of false charges. And the international community like the UN and the international, Ameri- or rather the Inter-American Court of Human Rights They've all condemned this practice repeatedly. So, you know, when we heard about it, we decided it was um, an important thing to involve ourselves in. Mm-hmm. And so we started by trying to help spread the word about Lincoln Al's ordeal by petitioning inter- for international observers at her trial. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and our group also put on public events and uh, other information campaigns in Winnipeg. Ultimately, uh, some observers were present at our trial, and the UN released a statement criticizing the process, which was pretty cool. And eventually, she was cleared of all charges due to lack of evidence. Great. Yeah. Great. Um, But yeah, anyways, after doing the background research for the petitions, we realized that the situation in Chile makes a really good comparative case to Canada. Um, Mm -hmm. Like it really just made it more clear to me how the sort of criminalization of indigenous resistance is a common part of colonialism in the Americas. It's like a Mm -hmm. common thread in all of our histories and geographies. And I guess through discussion with other members of the group, especially the co-authors of the article, doctors Henry Heller and Peter Kolchiski, uh, mm-hmm. the idea for all that was kind of fleshed out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a great article. We'll link it in the description box so everyone can, can check it out. It's interesting to me that the anti-terrorism laws really came out in, you know, the 1980s because you kind of think about anti-terrorism and just this whole, you know, craze around terrorism. Everyone's a terrorist. Who's a terrorist? It, you think about that after 9-11, right? And you think about all um, people, you know, environmental activists being labeled terrorists by the state after that point. But really, this is has a much longer history. And it's uh, a bit chilling to know that this is, you know, Pinochet era stuff that has just been carried forward to today, right? Totally. Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting insight, like um, this sort of narrative and discourse around terrorism. Uh, mm-hmm. certainly does have a really long history, right? Like, um, you know, World War One during that era and the events that set that off had to do with uh, nationalist groups that had been labeled as terrorists. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's mm-hmm. there's definitely this sort of panic around that that comes up every now and again. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I guess prior to the 90s, like, the equivalent was, of course, the communist scare, right? Yeah. That rather than, like, labeling any opponents terrorists, you would just label them as, like, communists or communist sympathizers. Mm-hmm. And um, after the sort of fall of the Berlin Wall, they had to have something to replace it. So I guess Mm -hmm. terror is the easiest narrative to throw in there. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. So you've gone over the um, Lincoln-Now case that was in your article. Could you also touch on uh, Beatrice Hunter's case? Yeah, yeah. So um, in the article, we also, um, as our sort of comparative study, when we're comparing uh, the sort of Chilean experience, we used the example of Beatrice Hunter, uh, who's an Inuk from Labrador and a grandmother, who was arrested for uh, her role in the occupation of the uh, Muskrat Falls Hydroelectric Project construction site. Mm-hmm. So uh, Beatrice worked with a group that calls themselves the Labrador Land Protectors, uh, which is kind of a sort of coalition of people from different nations. Uh, there's Inuit, uh, Inu and a lot of settlers that are all involved in this group uh, that formed together to try and stop Muskrat Falls, which is a massive hydroelectric project that, um, you know, on the one hand, threatens huge amounts of uh, Inuit territory by flooding it, mm-hmm. and also poses the threat of mercury contamination because as a cost-cutting measure, they decided not to clear the vegetation mm-hmm. of the area that's going to be the flood zone for it. And if you don't do that when you build a hydroelectric dam, it results in mercury contamination because the um, sort of process by which all of this vegetation breaks down, the bacteria that kind of decompose it, uh, as a part of their sort of um, metabolic cycle, they actually chemically alter the mercury that's naturally in water systems. So Hmm. uh, naturally, mercury is inert, and it doesn't really bioaccumulate in people. But if it gets transformed into methylmercury, 
which it does through this sort of decomposition process. Then it starts mm-hmm. to build up in fish and in the animals that eat fish, like seals and polar bears, which mm-hmm. form the basis of the Inuit diet. So, um, you know, there's very real risk of the contamination of the food chain, which is um, a huge problem in these northern communities that, you know, still rely on the land a lot, especially in light of like the astronomical cost of food in the north. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, so that's uh, essentially what was going on with the Muskrat Falls project. And there's other major concerns with it that, um, that that these Labrador land protectors had that I don't quite have time to get into today. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, suffice to say, we also wanted to uh, raise awareness of Beatrice Hunter's ordeal as she's um, also going through the court system for failing to obey a court order telling her to stay away from the construction site. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's been going through the courts for years now as numerous other land protectors. And uh, we thought it was really important to kind of raise awareness of what was going on in hopes that uh, more people might do things like support her by donating to her legal fund, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So in your article, you use John Bellamy Foster's concept of ecological imperialism to describe the ordeal of these two indigenous women. Could you explain this concept for us and how it relates to indigenous politics in Canada and North America more broadly? Sure, sure. So, um, like the concept of ecological imperialism, as I use it, comes from John Bellamy Foster and Brett Clark. Uh, so they use the term as a way of describing uh, the ecological dimensions of the imperialist relationship between states in the global north and the global south, the core and the periphery, uh, whatever terms you want to use for that. Um, so, like on the one hand, uh, they use the term to refer to the ways that the global north develops at an unsustainable rate, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of depends on the more intensive ecological destruction in the periphery, in the sort of colonized world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other hand, it also refers to imperialist practice, like military interventions and other use of coercive force, uh, which is driven by the need for resources to fuel this unsustainable growth in the global south. Or Global North, rather. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, the war in Iraq is their sort of uh, prime example of this, uh, insofar as it was driven partially by the American state's oil interests, mm-hmm. uh, oil being the key commodity for the uh, unsustainable growth in uh, American capitalism. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this uh, war for oil is sort of an archetype of uh, an ecological imperialist war. Um, Mm -hmm. So we use that concept, and in our article, we argue that it's also useful for understanding this colonial relationship between indigenous people, settler states, and uh, extractive capital, like the mining corporations. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And in particular, we argue that the widespread criminalization of indigenous resistance that we've been talking about is a manifestation of this ecological imperialism. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think Canada uh, is a great example of how this plays out. So in Canada, um, like the relationship between indigenous people and extractive capital goes back centuries. Like the colonization of what's currently Canada, first by France and then by Britain, um, was initially tied to the fur trade, right? A form of extraction. Mm-hmm. And so that depended on the intensive exploitation of indigenous labor. Uh, indigenous people trapped the furs, they transported them, they worked most of the um, lower end labor jobs for the uh, these fur trading companies Mm -hmm. and you know merchants in paris london and montreal grew incredibly wealthy off of 
this whole process, right? Like the Hudson Bay mm -hmm. Company is one of the most powerful companies in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, over the long term, Indigenous people ended up being the most poor and destitute of all people in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, despite doing all the hard work for the fur trade. So that's that's clearly, you know, there's a colonial manifestation of that, right? You get sort of development uh, at unsustainable rates in London and Paris and Montreal. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you end up with um, an ecological disaster, the uh, over-exploitation of wildlife and um, mm -hmm. poverty in the indigenous periphery. Mm -hmm. And so that was, you know, I think really set this relationship in motion in Canada. And, you know, that fur trade is all we know, as we all know, was followed by other sort of staple extraction, these other extractive economies focused on producing raw resources for exports. So, you know, in the prairies where I'm living now, focused on the development of agriculture to export wheat to England mm -hmm. to support its unsustainable growth of its population. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, Britain, the population was just too huge to feed itself. So they transformed the plains into the breadbasket of empire. And, uh, you know, in the north, we developed forestry, mining and oil and gas to provide energy and other materials, primarily to support the growth of capitalism in the United States and the growth of the industrial economy in England. Mm -hmm. And in these economies, indigenous people didn't really participate in a major way. For the most part, they were excluded from them. And, mm -hmm. you know, just told to get out of the way. Like mm -hmm. all of these economies are premised on the dispossession of land from indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Like they had to enclose the plains and kick Métis and First Nations people off of it to turn it into the breadbasket of empire. Uh, so these economies couldn't exist without colonial dispossession. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, indigenous people have always resisted this dispossession. And the Canadian state has always responded to this resistance with criminalization. Uh, mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, in BC in 1850, we had the so-called Chilcotin War, which was a, um, a sort of military resistance by the Chilcotin people to stop uh, road construction associated with the Caribou Gold Rush. Mm -hmm. And uh, these warriors were all charged uh, with treason for what they did <laughs> and hung. So they weren't treated as foreign combatants. They were treated as domestic criminals, uh, which mm -hmm. I think is a really, really interesting and really important distinction to make. Mm -hmm. That uh, this group of people who saw themselves and still understand themselves to be a separate nation from Canada mm -hmm. are being charged for an act of what was really an international war rather than uh, they're, they're being charged as uh, treasonous Canadian citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, despite the fact that they didn't have any of the citizenship rights the Canadians did at that time, right? Um, right. You know, up until 1960, First Nations couldn't vote in Canadian elections. But they could still be charged as Canadians anytime they mm -hmm. uh, tried to resist their situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah, and you know, that's, you know, one example of something that's continued on far longer. Like in 1885, you have the Métis and Cree resistance in the Canadian Plains to the sort of dispossession of their land for settlement, um, which, you know, the Canadian government sent in the Royal Northwest Mounted Police with police mm -hmm. almost being a euphemism there because, you know, this was an armed paramilitary organization uh, mm -hmm. that used military force to put down this rebellion. Um, and that was done in, co in conjunction with starvation policies to uh, basically manipulate starvation and famine to coerce these people to move into small reservations, mm -hmm. to clear the plains, to transform it into the breadbasket of empire. So, um, you know, that's another example of the way that they need to use force to uh, mm -hmm. facilitate these economies. Mm -hmm. And again, they criminalized the resistors, the Métis and Cree uh, militants that uh, rose up 
weren't, you know, treated as enemy combatants, prisoners of war that were then returned after a peace deal. They were charged with treason as Canadian citizens and hung at the neck in the largest mass hanging in Canadian history. Mm. Um, and all of this continues up to the present uh, with, uh, you know, situations like Elsa Pogtog, Una Stoughton is the most recent one. Um, mm-hmm. This is a common thread in Canadian history, the criminalization of Indigenous resistance to these sort of extractive export economies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a few thoughts when you were talking. Um, first of all, Glenn Coulthart kind of writes about this in Red Skin, White Mask, which is an amazing book, which I will link below also. Everyone should read that. But he talks about how, yeah, capitalism in North America or Canada specifically involved primitive accumulation, but not quite, right? So it was primitive accumulation in that, you know, land was enclosed and the people living on that land were dispossessed for capital accumulation. However, the people who were dispossessed, you know, the state didn't want their labor, right? So it wasn't that they were turned into laborers then who had to sell their labor for a wage. It was like, no, no, we only want your land. We don't want your labor. And so at that point, yeah, how do you participate in the economy at that at that point, right? You have no land and no mm-hmm. one wants your labor. I think that's, uh, you know. Yeah, I think that's a great insight. Like that's really what Canada was based on was there was, uh, you know, following the War of 1812, which was kind of the last moment in time when uh, the British and Canadian colonists were really dependent on Indigenous people as military allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, following that war, there's this gradual shift towards seeing Indigenous people as irrelevant to Canada, as just something mm-hmm. in the way that we had to get rid of. Yeah, And that's also when these really intensive white supremacist ideologies started to really take root, I think, mm-hmm. um, in Canada and in Britain more broadly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the result was that we have this process of primitive accumulation, which is the term Marx used to describe the process that co- creates capitalist social relations, right? And it, mm-hmm. Marx describes it as kind of a dual process on the one hand of dispossessing peasants or indigenous people of uh, the means of subsistence, their land, their resources, the ways that they feed themselves, uh, Mm -hmm. rendering them dependent on capitalists and then absorbing them into the workforce as uh, wage laborers. But yeah, with indigenous peoples by and large, until quite recently, that was just a one-sided process of dispossession Mm -hmm. uh, because racism basically prevented them from participating in the new economy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, other than as, uh, you know, on the kind of the lowest rung of the sort of class ladder, like they were what Marx calls that sort of reserve army of labor. So kind of perpetually unemployed, doing mm-hmm. sort of occasional precarious, low paid work is, uh, yeah, the position that a lot of uh, indigenous people found themselves in. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, once again, check out Coolheart's book. Um, and then the second thing I was thinking, um, I have a video about this, just about violence in general, because, you know, you have a lot of people defending capitalism by saying that, you know, this is just a voluntary system of exchange that creates mutually beneficial results for each party entering into this. And that, you know, people who are taking up arms or protesting or whatever, they're being unnecessarily violent or, you know, just this whole discourse around violence, assuming that the current status quo or our current social relations are not violent or they don't require any violence, right? Like capitalism doesn't require Require violence, like maybe violence happens 
you know, but it, the system itself doesn't require violence. But obviously, from its very foundations, it requires so much force and violence to even, yeah, create the social conditions or the social relations of capitalism and to free up all these resources that have to be brought into this economic system. Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, there's this sort of original violence uh, that Canada was premised upon and that mm-hmm. Canadian capitalism never would have developed without the uh, what was often genocide against Indigenous mm-hmm. people. And, mm-hmm. you know, you still need that coercive force every step of the way to keep these social relations in place. Like Every step of the way. Yeah, whether it's like breaking that's strikes. Why, that's why it hasn't gone away. Yeah, whether yeah. it's strike breaking or like stopping Indigenous blockades, like, um, mm-hmm. it's just, it doesn't work without very heavy-handed uh, sort of coercive intervention by the state. That's mm-hmm. a key part of yeah. how the whole process works. Yeah, just protecting private property. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, so my next question is about how to potentially resolve this, or is it even possible to resolve this within capitalism? I mean, I think we've just been talking about how capitalism is predicated upon this. And I think in Canada, you can see that clearly because for anyone who doesn't know Canadian politics, I know a lot of our listeners are um, from the US, but we had a very conservative prime minister, Stephen Harper, for quite some time. You can just Google him. He's quite a horrifying human (laughs) just in general. But we have Trudeau, who's kind of like our Macron, like he's kind of like, you know, this young good-looking, charismatic kind of, oh, I'm a liberal guy, you know, but just really a a neoliberal. Anyway, coming in on this promise of hope and change and, you know, yes, we're going to be so progressive, we're going to repair our relationship with Indigenous nations, but then all of these things continue to happen under Trudeau's reign. So, I mean, obviously, this is not something that we can necessarily vote (laughs) out if, Mm -hmm. if we're still you know, if we're still operating within this framework of capitalism, just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good point to raise. Um, And yeah, the sort of electoral history in Canada definitely shows that uh, there's something much deeper uh, at play here than just simple party politics. Mm -hmm. Like, I I think if we're going to talk about how we could actually resolve these contradictions and why we can't under capitalism, I think it's probably important to explain the concept of metabolic rift, Mm -hmm. uh, which is another concept uh, that uh, John Bellamy Foster uses quite frequently. He draws it from Karl Marx's writing uh, and Mm -hmm. the notes Marx made about soil science, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So in if you go back to Marx, there's uh, some really interesting passages where he talks about the way in which capitalism has kind of caused a um, a rift in the earth's nutrient cycling. So traditionally, uh, you know, in peasant societies, people would grow food, they would consume it, the human waste would eventually make its way back into the soil as soil nutrients. And there's mm-hmm. this sort of cycling of, you know, nitrogen and other soil nutrients um, uh, through the sort of like food and clothing that peasants were making themselves from the products of their land. Mm-hmm. But then when you move to a capitalist form, which is really associated with urbanization, right? That's kind of a new sort of aspect of capitalism, this massive growth of the urban, uh, this mm-hmm. massive concentration of people that are separate from where their food is being produced. It creates a sort of rift in that nutrient cycling that, um, you know, all the nitrogen that uh, British farmers needed was essentially being flushed into the Thames River through mm-hmm. the London sewer, sewage system and uh, floating out to sea. 
So as a result, you had crop failures in England. Um, and so Marx was, I think, the first one to really tie this into uh, sort of capitalist development was premised on mm. this division between town and country that was um, making sustainable agricultural impossible. So as a result of that sort of metabolic rift, Britain ended up taking a whole bunch of uh, artificial fertilizers, guano, from Latin America, uh, sort of mm. Chile and Peru, to kind of get back to that example. And uh, that led to the War of the Pacific, of a war between Britain and several other uh, imperialist belligerents over the control of these guano fields, which Britain needed to continue to feed its population. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that's one sort of way that capitalism creates this sort of rift in the metabolic cycling of the earth, mm-hmm. which then leads to a sort of uh, imperialist action. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. we can see the same thing in oil and gas, right? Like capitalism requires this massive amount of energy that we can only at this point really acquire from fossil fuels, which are, you know, stored ancient energy, right? These are mm-hmm. uh, decomposed plants and animals. Uh, all of this energy originally all comes from the sun, right? Like the sun mm-hmm. heats the earth, the plants absorb that, the animals eat the plants. So rather than the sort of medieval peasant-based societies that have this sort of cycling between the sun, plants, and then burning wood, uh, this massive reliance on fossil fuels is another example of a metabolic rift. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the um, attack on the Unistoten camp to allow a uh, fossil fuel pipeline through their territory, I think, mm-hmm. is an excellent example of um, ecological imperialism and a system that we're not going to be able to move beyond until we deal with this metabolic rift, until we find a more Mm -hmm. rational way to organize our society uh, Mm -hmm. into a sustainable framework that really isn't possible in our our present economy that just relies on so much fuel, so much energy to keep the profits flowing. Mm -hmm. I like that concept, the metabolic rift, uh, just it's kind of like a deeper dive into why, just another reason why imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, right? Totally. (laughs) Um, But speaking of Unistoten, so once again, not not all of our listeners are Canadians. So could you explain a bit about what's going on um, with Unistoten camp and how this is part of this ecological imperialism? Yeah, for sure. So, um, like, I think this standoff really gets to the heart of Canada as a colonial project. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, for those who don't know, the Unistoten camp was established by people from the Wet'suwet'en Nation. Uh, So this is in northwestern British Columbia to block a, uh, a transport corridor for actually several major oil and gas pipelines, which are like the crown jewels of the Canadian extractive industries. Uh, Mm -hmm. So yeah, so some Wet'suwet'en people uh, established this camp on the land in 2009 uh, to basically occupy this transportation corridor where several pipelines were planned, uh, including the now defunct Northern Gateway Pipeline, which was a huge political clash in Canada. One of the mm-hmm. ways that Trudeau kind of earned his uh, sort of progressive credentials was as coming out in opposition to the Northern Gateway Pipeline. Um, mm-hmm. The transportation corridor would also have this pipeline called the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline made by TransCanada, uh, which is the source of the present conflict that you and I have been referring to today. Um, mm-hmm. So that camp existed for a decade. Uh, it started in 2009. However, in the past few weeks, the uh, government has used a shocking level of coercive force um, in terms of using large numbers of militarized police officers with 
uh, camo assault rifles, combat helmets, um, mm-hmm. uh, to remove these peaceful indigenous people who simply refuse to get out of the way and refuse to allow uh, pipeline workers onto their uh, their traditional lands. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the, the uh, RCMP did this in response to an injunction that the company building the coastal gas link pipeline uh, won in court shortly before the end of 2018. So yeah, like, and this is like, again, clearly gets back to the heart of the Canadian colonial project. Um, you know, on the one hand is just the shocking use of force, right? Uh, and the shocking escalation of force. Uh, mm. You know, none of these, uh, the people that lived at Unistoten had raised a rifle to the RCMP. There was no reason to send in the military. Um, mm. You know what I mean? Like, this wasn't like a usual, like a couple of, uh, you know, constables kind of show up your, show up at your door uh, in mm-hmm. your usual police gear. Like, you know, this was a military invasion. We should be clear about that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And all of this involved a lack of recognition and respect of Indigenous title to their lands and a lack of respect of their right to govern themselves. So mm-hmm. uh, like most nations in British Columbia, um, the Wet'suwet'en had never signed away their title to their traditional territory. And, mm-hmm. you know, while they were confined to small reserves in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they didn't sign any treaty or any other document surrendering their title of their homeland. Um, mm-hmm. and while the governments of Canada and BC have long argued that, uh, BC First Nations don't possess this Aboriginal title, uh, several Supreme Court rulings have established that they do, according to the mm-hmm. Canadian legal. So even according to the sort of colonial Canadian legal system, right. these people do have a claim of title to their traditional territory that the government's just absolutely ignoring through this whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of uh, self-determination and self-government, the situation gets a bit more complicated. Uh, so in this community, as in many others, there's a conflict between the band council system that's been imposed on them and mm-hmm. the traditional or sort of hereditary leadership that um, a lot of people uh, look to for guidance and authority in these matters. So it might be worth maybe just giving a little bit of history on the sort of band council systems, do you think? Is that helpful? Yeah. I would say definitely, because I think this is something that a lot of people don't understand. I mean, I had some, uh, you know, friends of mine commenting on posts that I made supporting the Unisotin, sending me a link to this industry funded website that says, oh, look, all of the indigenous nations along the coastal gas link pipeline gave their consent to go forward. And so we're all good. And I'm just like, nope. Uh, that's not the case, but I think it's easy for people to believe that. So definitely, I think some some background on this would be important. Okay, so um, like the band council systems, uh, which are the sort of political bodies that gave their consent to this pipeline, um, are an imposed form of governance that the Canadian state imposed on all of these communities when they moved them into reserves in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, mm-hmm. So band councils are created by the Indian Act which is the piece of Canadian legislation that's essentially uh, the key tool of legal control of Indigenous people in Canada. Uh, The Mm -hmm. Indian Act, yeah, created this governance system with really limited powers. Rather than being like, you know, a national government, like the hereditary Mm -hmm. chiefs were, Mm -hmm. the Indian Act uh, basically gave them like, at best, municipal-like powers around like, you know, basic really minor services within the community for the most part until relatively recently they were mostly just an advisory committee anyways because Uh uh state appointed indian agents these white bureaucrats that would be sent in could basically override any other decisions um Uh but anyways these band councils were intended specifically to displace 
the sort of traditional leadership formations, which varied a lot from nation to nation, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a sort of hereditary clan and chief system with the Wet'suwet'en, uh, whereas uh, for like um, some northern Cree groups, there might not be the same level of hereditary leadership, mm-hmm. but they still have their own forms of leadership, their own clan systems, and uh, their own ways of um, making decisions and governing themselves. Mm-hmm. And so since World War II, there's been this movement for self-determination for Indigenous peoples. And in some cases, that takes the form of fighting for broader power for these elected imposed band council systems, which have been given more powers uh, over the last 60 or 70 years, gradually. Uh, they're able to control more things that happen within the reserves. They're given more political authority. But there's also been this parallel movement to reinvigorate uh, the sort of traditional leadership structures and values and ways of doing things. Um, mm-hmm. So there's often this sort of tension between your elected band council systems and these hereditary or other traditional forms of leadership and decision making uh, that mm-hmm. other people are looking to today. Mm-hmm. So the Unistoten camp is it's a really interesting situation. So the camp there argues that the band council only has authority over the reserve and that the title to their traditional territory, which is what this pipeline goes through, it doesn't go through the reserve, it goes through their traditional title territory, mm-hmm. uh, they argue that that territory should fall under the jurisdiction of the traditional leadership. And I think it's a really interesting argument. Like the uh, the Indian Act legislation that created these band councils really only addressed reserve lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, at the time the government was denying that they had any title to the rest of the land in BC. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's not clear that the band council system, which again was imposed, was ever really intended to have jurisdiction over this matter. Mm-hmm. And that if they had negotiated treaties about this title at the time prior to putting them onto the reserves, they would have been negotiating that with these traditional hereditary clan leaderships. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's actually a really fascinating legal argument that, um, may actually have some, uh, maybe given the light of day in the Canadian courts, which is mm-hmm. uh, quite interesting. Now, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think it's up to a white academic like me to say how this should play out. Um, you know, my point is that this community is clearly in the process of figuring out how their traditional territory should be governed, right? Mm-hmm. They're just now starting to have their rights to this traditional territory recognized in whatever minor and insufficient way the state is doing that. And they're having a conversation about how they want to govern these lands, whether it's through the band council elected system, through these hereditary chiefs. Clearly, there's a discussion going on in this community. But instead of recognizing that, instead of allowing them to have this conversation or involving both types of leadership in these debates, Mm -hmm. uh, the government's simply pushing pipelines through with violent Mm -hmm. force and only engaging with their sort of Indian Act sanctioned band council system. Um, Mm -hmm. instead of having these broader conversations, instead of encouraging real democracy, uh, real Mm -hmm. reconciliation and real nation building for indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the Wet'suwet'en are are really highlighting the illegality of what Canada is doing, right? So Canada is basing all of this on, well, we have the injunction, so you're breaking the law, but that's Canadian settler law, which you know, does not respect the laws of the sovereign nations of which we actually inhabit. And even for even for nations who did sign treaties, um, you know, they were very often, you know, sharing treaties, it wasn't like we're giving up the title to our land, right? I still think that across Canada, no matter what, I don't think there is any quote, unquote, you know, seeded, or like, you know, seeded land in a way that should actually be 
regarded as seated, I suppose. I think it's a uh, really just, great point. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. Uh, and something that I probably should have clarified. So the, the nations in BC didn't sign these historic treaties that had on the paper version, mm-hmm. uh, a surrender clause that's saying we cede, release and surrender all of our land. Right. Um, obviously they couldn't read the document because these discussions took place through an interpreter mm-hmm. and there's mounting oral evidence. There's also mounting archival evidence that the way that this was explained to them wasn't that they were ceding their land, that mm-hmm. their land would still be their land, but they had to share it. Mm-hmm. They were agreeing to share it with uh, settlers, mm-hmm. um, but they weren't giving up their rights to it. They weren't giving up their control mm-hmm. over it. And so the presumption would have been that each time more land was taken up, they would have to consent to it first, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. was the way that it was it seems to have been explained to them. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, the same dynamic, I think, uh, morally and legally should exist in other parts of Canada, like the Plains, like the East, like Southern Ontario, that um, before any Indigenous territory can be used for something like a pipeline, the community mm-hmm. has to consent to it first. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, yeah, they have inherent rights to their traditional territory, and that is the law, right? And so this injunction is breaking the law. We are breaking the law in doing this. So you mentioned that, you know, it's not up to white academics to make decisions about who is the legitimate voice of an Indigenous community. Um, So, you know, what is the role for people like us in these situations? I mean, obviously, I think a lot of us are out there supporting the the Unistoten camp and blockade. So when a community is divided, how do you think we should position ourselves? Right. So um, this is a problem I've dealt with a lot in my own work. Um, and to start off, I should just say there's always going to be differences of opinion on what course of action a community should take. Uh, there's always going to be internal discussions and debates. That's inevitable because Indigenous people are people. Uh, you know, we all have our own minds and we'll naturally have differences of opinion on things. Uh, that's part of the human condition. And these discussions and debates are a part of democracy, really. That's what democracy is all about. In some circumstances, there's really contentious projects. So like I mentioned, uranium mining in Nunavut, my involvement with that. So that's a really contentious issue. Um, the group that negotiated the Inuit land claim, Nunavut Tungavik Incorporated, uh, is really supportive of uranium mining. It's signed agreements with uranium mining companies, um, despite, you know, generations of resistance to it by uh, Nunavut Inuit. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's these sort of like community-based organizations in Nunavut called Hunters and Trappers Organizations, which um, are another sort of elected council that are intended to represent hunters' interests and their rights at the local level. And Nunavut Tungavik Incorporated, that broader... Uh, sort of business-oriented um, organization that represents all the Inuit in Nunavut, butts heads with HTOs quite frequently over this uranium question. Mm-hmm. And throughout the whole process, that sort of tension really um, was a common thread through uh, the whole debate around uranium mining that I was involved in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it would be nice to be able to say that we should stay out of it when Indigenous communities are debating these issues, that they need to make decisions for themselves. And, you know, there's obviously something to this argument that that's, you know, self-determination means that they have to make their own decisions. But, you know, at the same time, it's really not that simple. Like, Mm -hmm. so these conversations in Indigenous communities always involve many outsiders, a lot of settlers, most of whom work for industry or the government. So, you know, most of the folks that are already going to be involved in the community discussing this holding consultation meetings uh, are people that have jobs that are focused on enabling these pipelines and other extractive activities to proceed. Mm -hmm. So whether they're 
engineers working for industry or PR reps working for industry trying to convince the public that a project will be safe and beneficial or um, or if there's scientists working for government, uh, even mm-hmm. in the Department of Environment, who are responsible for finding ways to minimize the impacts of these pipelines. At the end of the day, they're basically all enabling this economy. They're trying to find some sort of a compromise to get these pipelines through. Mm-hmm. So by not engaging in these discussions, sort of people that are more critical of these things, people on the left, people as a part of the environmental movement, they're essentially mm-hmm. just tipping the balance in favor of industry, um, mm. I think. Um, yeah. And also, you know, when we're dealing with industries that are driving large scale ecological destruction, like climate change and the proliferation of nuclear weapons and wastes, like we all have a stake in this, um, mm-hmm. like morally, um, you know, we have, I think, a responsibility to engage in these discussions. We need to do so carefully and in mm-hmm. a way that respects Indigenous people's right to self-determination. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't think that we can just stay out of it when, you know, all of our lives are at risk from global climate change at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we absolutely have to work together to confront extractive capital, especially oil, gas, mm-hmm. and the nuclear industries to move to a more just and sustainable future. Like if mm-hmm. we want to literally have food to feed our children in 50 mm-hmm. years, this is something we have to do. Yeah. So we're not entirely outsiders to it, right? And I don't think that we should think of ourselves as it. Um, no, absolutely not. And and also, you know, because we also know so many of the problems with Ban Chief and Council and where that came from, the Indian Act, which is a very, you know, racist policy. We know that, yeah, for a lot of Ban Chief and Council you know, there's a lot of pressures. They they also have to think about how are we going to make money for, you know, our people on the reserve, etc. So it's, you know, there's a lot of pressures that come from colonialism and capitalism and from this history of racist policies and such that put certain pressures on, you know, band chief and council. And then obviously, then there's contradictions or conflict between uh, band chief and council and hereditary chiefs or whatnot. But knowing all of this, yeah, I mean, I think that if we were to just step back and say, no, no, the system is fine, the system is working. You know, the system is not working. It was it was developed to work for the Canadian state and extractive capital, not for indigenous communities more broadly, right? Totally, totally. Like, yeah, stepping back is basically just, um, uh, you know, there's that famous quote from Paulo Freire, basically amounts to like, you know, to do nothing in the face of injustice is to work towards injustice. Like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't be neutral on a moving train sort of thing. Um, Right. Yeah. Like, and there is already so much pressure, like, you know, the sort of financial pressure that you mentioned that the state puts Mm -hmm. on these band councils uh, by manipulating funding agreements and stuff to pressure them into consenting to pipelines. Um, exactly. And yeah, to a degree, they're also structurally created like that. So in Nunavut, uh, Inuit don't fall under the Indian Act. They don't have the same band council system. But they negotiated these modern treaties. And, uh, you know, the state really pressured them into a very specific model of treaty that gives them very small little tracts of land, less than 20% of their former territory. And as their representative bodies, Nunavut Tungavik Incorporated, incorporated, like it's a corporation designed to be able to very easily make agreements with mining firms. Um, mm-hmm. So the whole thing was set up to enable extraction at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's, um, it, it's understandable that band councils and NTI would make these types of decisions. And I think it's important to note that, that we're not saying these types of things to morally condemn the people that work in these institutions. No. but you know, the people that work in these other institutions, hunters and trappers organizations in Nunavut, 
or through the hereditary chief system in BC, the people that are opposing these major extractive projects, like they have a right to form relationships with outsiders too, right? Like, mm-hmm. and these relationships are really one of the key parts of all of this, you know, as much mm-hmm. as possible, we should make sure that our work is based on concrete relationships with Indigenous community members. And mm-hmm. like, we need to work under the guidance and the permission of the people we're working with, not just, you know, launching campaigns on our own accord. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have to be open to criticism and to change our approach and response to criticism from Indigenous community. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, obviously, uh, we're going to engage in issues where we don't always have direct relationships. Unistoten, for example, I don't have a direct relationship with anyone there. But, you know, I'm talking about it today. And mm-hmm. if I didn't have a hip injury that limited my mobility, I would certainly be attending rallies and other solidarity events here in Winnipeg to support them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how couldn't I speak out like, mm-hmm. you know, the state just launched what really amounts to like a military invasion of an indigenous camp all mm-hmm. in the name of an industry that threatens the well-being of all of our future generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, obviously I have to say something. We all have to do something. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in these situations, I think that we have to take our cues from community spokespeople. We should focus on providing the kind of support that they're asking for. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a good point you made that, uh, yeah, we're, we're not here to, you know, uh, point fingers at band chief and council or whatnot, because, yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of uh, decisions made to allow these kinds of things are also born out of a history of marginalization, economic marginalization from colonialism. So and we're all complicit in that, right? So on that note, uh, what sort of support has Unistoten asked for? How can we support uh, the Unistoten camp? And is there anything else that listeners can do to support Francesca Lincolnau or Beatrice Hunter? That's uh Excellent question, because I think it's, yeah, again, really important for all of us to uh, support these movements because they're, in, they're ultimately fighting for all of our best interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, you know, they're actively fighting the industries that are threatening us all. And they're the ones that are paying the price for it in terms of being violently arrested and imprisoned. So um, mm-hmm. I think that's uh, a great thing for your listeners to do. I guess in terms of Una Stoughton, they've issued a, uh, a series of requests for support, actually. So they've requested that people write letters and uh, call on the telephone, uh, government officials in BC and Canada, representatives of the RCMP, uh, mm-hmm. expressing your support for Una Stoughton. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also, they've issued a call out for just solidarity actions throughout Canada, many of which have been going on for the past couple of weeks. There's been rallies everywhere. So, mm-hmm. you know, people should check on Facebook to attend some of those rallies. I hope that they Mm-hmm. continue on and i hope my leg heals up a bit so i can make it out to some of them mm-hmm. um and then court support obviously this is one of the biggest challenges that these groups face is once they're all charged uh mm-hmm. they have to go to court and if you want to have any chance in um succeeding there you need to have a lawyer which is expensive so um mm-hmm. they've set up a legal defense fund that uh you can uh, donate to as well mm-hmm. i hope that we can maybe put some more information about this on the website yeah, definitely. We'll put the links to this all in the uh, the show notes. Okay, great. I heard I read that um, the hereditary chiefs had actually opened the gates a couple days ago uh, because they just didn't want any more violence to happen. Um, you know, fourteen people were arrested the last time, so I heard that the gates are open. But yes, they do still. They need um, support for their legal fund and their legal challenge to this pipeline. Totally, totally. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, yeah, like, that's right. They did open the gates um, several days ago, uh, in response to this violence, like they mm-hmm. made it very yeah. clear in their statement that we don't support this pipeline, and we're going to mm-hmm. continue to resist it. 
but we also have a responsibility to protect the health and safety of everybody that's working mm-hmm. with us on this. And we're not waiting to uh, going to put them in the position where they're going to be the targets of violence by the state. Yeah. Uh, so they were. So this isn't free, prior, and informed consent. This is coerced consent. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and it doesn't count as consent at all. No. Uh, so yeah, I, I would strongly recommend donating to their legal defense fund if you're somebody that is of financial means to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do similar things to support Beatrice Hunter and the Labrador Land Protectors. They're, as I said, still going through the courts. So donations to their legal defense fund, which will provide information for, um, uh, would also be of a huge help. In terms of Francesca Lincoln now, I'm not uh, sure what's happening with her at this point. As far as I can tell, she was fully acquitted of, acquitted of all charges in 2018. And mm-hmm. I haven't received any call outs or requests for support of her struggle since that mm-hmm. time. Okay. So um, I, can't, I can't give much advice there, but definitely showing up to rallies, making phone calls, writing letters, circulating petitions, mm-hmm. supporting Unistoten, and um, donating to the legal defense fund of both Unistoten and the uh, Muskrat Falls Labrador Land Protectors would be, I mm-hmm. think, an excellent place for people to start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also just wanted to shout out also the Tiny House Warriors. The uh, Sequemp Nation is fighting the Trans Mountain Pipeline in BC. It's kind of a similar thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's just a lot going on in terms of extractive capital, brutalizing indigenous resistance across the country and the continent uh, more broadly. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's not going to stop. That is Canada, right? Like that's been yeah. canned up from day one. From And that um, is capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, since, uh, you know, Pontiac's war, uh, kind of uprising against the sort of British colonial rule in the 1760s, uh, which mm-hmm. was really about uh, enabling the fur trade, right up to Unistoten today, like, from the earliest moments to today, that is what Canada is founded on, is right. the sort of violence to enable extraction. Yeah, the RCMP, which is our, like, federal police force was founded to put down indigenous resistance like that's what they were founded on so um but this is the same in the u.s as well the standing rock etc i mean this is just capitalism and settler colonialism and imperialism that's just it all goes together i just i wanted to read the last paragraph of your article is really really great i was wondering if i could read that aloud before we left sure please do okay So it says, the criminalization of indigenous resistance is both the legacy of colonial conquest and an expression of contemporary capitalism's need for ever-expanding sources of energy and other resources. Indigenous peoples of the Americas remain on the front lines of resistance to the environmental and social costs of this unthinking drive for capital accumulation. The machinery that propels this process is the state, whether in the United States and Canada or in countries of the global south, including Brazil and Chile. Their preferred tool is criminalization, including of spiritual and political indigenous leaders, the bedrock of their communities. It is a deeply depraved economic system in which indigenous grandmothers are routinely imprisoned simply for defending their communities. Boom. Mic drop. Thank you. I'm pretty proud of that statement. I think it was a good closing to the article. Um, Absolutely. Before we go, I did want to uh, reference a book that I'm really excited about. Uh, since you brought up uh, Standing Rock, there's mm-hmm. a book coming out soon by a scholar named Nick Estes, uh, who's an indigenous scholar uh, in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, called Our History is Our Future, that deals with the Standing Rock protest as well as uh just broader history of resistance um 
to colonization in the U.S. And I think it's going to be an absolutely fascinating book. And Mm -hmm. I hope uh, people will check it out. I think it does an excellent job of, I think, forwarding the type of critique that you and I are trying to make of this connection between capitalism and colonialism, Mm -hmm. uh, that he... Uh, this is going to be an excellent contribution to those discussions. And I hope everybody has a chance to check it out. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about all of this today. Is there any last words you'd like to say, or if you want to shout out where people could find you or your work? Uh, Well, you know, um, I have stuff uh, published frequently in Canadian Dimension magazine, if you want to read more of the stuff that I've written. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I guess I'd just like to reiterate, like, please help out these land defenders. Um, and it's mm-hmm. not just, again, a one-time thing. Like, as you said, there's going to be more of these coming up time and time again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope more and more uh, settlers will start to uh, become allies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we'll link all of these important links and uh, ways you can support these communities in the description box below. So thank you, Warren, again, for coming on the show. Awesome. Thanks so much. I already know. She's